HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15. Learn more at gardencult.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food? We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. You know, my ingredients are making themselves, and so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Camille Riviere. We'll talk to Camille about the role and importance of a wine importer and some of her terrific wines. We'll taste a Grenache blend from the Ardèche for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Camille Riviere was raised in Paris in the Loire Valley. She fell in love with wine at an early age. So like any good mom, her mom enrolled Camille in wine classes, right? She in turn worked and studied her way through France. Camille eventually came to the United States working at Morel and Frederick Wildman, learning the business side of wine. Her realization and gravitation towards natural wines convinced her to start her own wine import business, Camille Riviere Selection in Brooklyn. Camille travels back and forth to France, dedicated to translating the narrative and mission of each of her producers to the U.S. consumer. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Camille. Thank you for having me, Sam. We, this is very nice, we are talking to Camille live 
in person. Camille and I are face-to-face in lower Manhattan at our friend Pascaline Lapelte's restaurant, Racines. We're sitting at the front table at the window looking out at the street. So Camille, thank you for coming on The Grape Nation. Um, before we get into it, I want you to give our listeners a little context and background. Um, so let's tell people how you got into the business. Give me a brief chronology of your life and journey in wine and how you got to your own business. Sure. Um, I went to hotel management school in France uh, for four years. And upon graduating, I had to do complete an internship, which I did in New York at Morel Wine and Company, uh, focusing on the Bordeaux 2003 future sales with Peter Morel. Interesting vintage. Very interesting vintage. A lovely one. Uh, hot. Hot. Yeah. Had great scores. I was like 95, 98. I had to do all the spreadsheets. And um, after three years working at Morel, um, I uh, moved on to the wholesale part of the business, and uh, interviewed at Frederick Wildman, and they hired me on the spot, and uh, I worked there for five years. And in 2011, at 30 years old, I was kind of uh, maxed out and uh, a little empty and bored, and I decided to go walk around in the vineyards in France and to see if there's something that could uh, trigger my interest in the vineyards. I met some winemakers, and I came back three months later to New York for a wedding with uh, some bottles in my suitcase, (laughs) I did not know I was going to start an import company. I just wanted to see my old customers that I missed and share those bottles of wine with them. Jean-Luc Ledu uh, was my first customer, and uh, he bought 25 cases. I walk out the door and said, oh, shit, how do I make this wine get wow. here? Was and, he always downtown? Uh, Jean-Luc passed away. Uh, no, I know he passed store, away, but the store, was yeah. it always downtown? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. It was the beginning of the store in 2011. I'd worked a little bit with him at Wildman. And then uh, I reached out to my friend Zev Rovine, uh, who explained to me all of the tricks from QuickBooks to how to clear wine. And six months later, uh, the first pallets were here. Wow. So Zev taught you the tough stuff, yeah. the not fun stuff. Um, tell me one thing. So Morel was a retailer, you know, with a big uh, retail client base and private, you know, customers too. Um, wild men, we would categorize as an importer, right? Yeah. A distributor? It's an importer. I was working on the wholesale part. I was one of the sales, sales rep, uh, uh, handling a high-end account, French people and complicated people. Right. And they have had then a pretty good portfolio of mostly what kind of wines? It was terrific to be able to have the opportunity to learn and work um, in that company, which had wines from every company. Uh, they're really well known for their Burgundy, but we would sell wine from Chile, Argentina, New Zealand, uh, all around Europe, America. So that was a great uh, learning opportunity. Yeah. Every week you had winemakers coming. We would do work with, which is a, a glorified dog and pony show where you take the winemaker around to accounts and sell wine and yeah. have dinners. It was very entertaining. Um, they're a pretty big importer. What I want you to help me with is... They do it one way, obviously. You do it another way. Um, Tell me how you define the role of an importer. To get people... Because remember, there's big like Wildman and even bigger, and then there's you, you know, small but not so small, and people even smaller. what's, What's the role? I think people don't appreciate or understand that part of, you know, how wine gets in front of them. 
I think it's important to understand uh, what the winemaker needs, how we can best represent him, and uh, that's about it. It's pretty simple. Is there enough of that? Good importers? Enough of people wanting to know what the winemaker needs and all the other stuff. I'm not sure. I can't speak for, for everyone. I think that every importer uh, is, has a very good relationship with their growers. Uh, I, I will only speak for myself. Right. Uh, I only work with 25 growers because I really can't see myself expanding that much because it already takes a lot of time to be able to follow all the growing season and learn their cycle and when do they bottle, when do they need the wines to be picked up, when do they need the cash flow to be in. Uh, so it's about understanding because every winery works completely differently depending on how they're set up, on uh, Do they rotate their wine every year? Do they age the wine? So it's basically being in constant communication and having a good understanding of what they need in order to be able to serve them, in order to be able to serve also the restaurants in New York and make this happen on both ends. So 25 wineries you're dealing with, um, and that gives you the opportunity to give the attention and manage it the way you want based on all the things you described. Aren't there people out there with good wines that could use your help? You know, doesn't, wouldn't you like to bring on more people if they were the right people or you're not even? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Especially with like next year of vintage, like 2021, where, you know, you'll be, you'll be seeing at least 30% less wine. And that's on average around France. Some places like the Jura and Burgundy are going to be down drastically. Is that because of the cold weather, the frost? Yeah, the frost they okay. had in March and April. And right now, just last week, there's a lot of hail in France, especially in, Burgen, uh, in the Jura. Yeah. Wow. Um, wow. The old people had predicted it, seeing that it had frost. They said June is going to have a lot of hail. July might not be very warm, and we might be harvesting under the rain. So it's just going to, the 2021 vintage is not going to be easy. 2020 was great yeah. overall. With the pandemic and all that. Um, people always say, if you go into a wine store and you talk to the owner or the sales guy and explain to them what you want, you know, they work hard to get the stuff that they think you like. If you go into a psalm, they'll do the same thing. In essence, that's what a wine importer does before it even gets to those guys. Yeah. Um, People should follow importers. They should look at the back of labels, right? If they drink one of your wines, they go, wow, Camille Riviera's selection. What think, else does she make, right? I, mean, I think more that- and more uh, these days, especially like with Instagram and all that social media, I'm, even though I'm not really great at that or don't focus or spend the energy on it because I'm already running a company solo, even though my wife right. just joined me in the company. I've been doing all of the picking up registration uh, putting together orders, uh, updating lists, going seeing customers. And now I work with uh, 12 other states. So it's a lot of um, paperwork and stuff to do. So there's a limit at how much I'm able to do. So my idea was not to be a company where I have to hire staff. uh, Any staff? No, none. You don't want two or three people? No. No, because afterwards I'd have to, because this is a, a size where it's manageable and I can do it on my own. 
And if I'd have to hire staff, then I'd have to constantly be able to have wine in order for them to be able to make a living. And I might, for example, in the vintage like 2021, if there is less wine, I might not be able, I might have to make certain concessions on right. the type of wine I want to bring in or the quality of wine. And so this is why I think that so small can, can be good too. Yeah, I mean, I love that. And, you know, I hope you can maintain that for your own happiness, the success of the business and the winemakers. Um, how do you, early on and even now, but probably less now, how did you go about finding your winemakers? I mean, was it what you said earlier? You went to France, you walked around? Yeah, 2011. Uh, I came back to France on uh, June 8th, 2011. And it started by a little caviste in, uh, in Le Pouligan called Le Garage à Vin. And he told me about a big tasting that was happening in Bordeaux. And I only knew about Vinexpo. He told me, no, no, there's something called an off. I'm like, what is an off? And so I went there. What is an off? How do you spell it? O-F-F. It's off, off, okay. off of the, the, okay. the big major tastings. And I went to uh, Chateau Le Puy. And there were all those winemakers. I had seen some of their labels. In, in New York, but I just went all around and I, for a year, I went to every single tasting across France. Uh, by the time I, I wasn't driving, so I was biking or walking, I'd take the train and then I'd bike to a tasting or walk on the street. And, uh, and that was, that's how I was able to discover all those winemakers. I started with the south of France because it was a region I thought uh, offered a lot of value and was completely different from all the Languedoc wines I had been tasting in the United States, which were usually bigger, larger, heavier. Right. Um, and so I went to visit Mascoutlou, who used to be my teacher for uh, four years in hotel management school. And I knew that he used to make wine because I remember his like red wines on red hands on Monday morning at school. Uh, but fine. back then I wasn't computing too much. I was a lot in the party scene in Paris. Right. Uh, and he told me, Camille, I make wine. Maybe one day you want to come and visit me. And I did. And it was great to be able to call him uh, Jeff and not Monsieur Coutelou. And, uh, and that's uh, part of the first bottles I brought back, along with uh, the bottles of the Clofantine uh, in Fougère, who were really like my first um, heartbeat when it comes to natural wine. And I think the, the winery and the wine that started my company. So you set me up for a lot of questions there. The first is one of the last things you said. We talk about natural wines, and you and I agree that, you know, that title of natural wines. It's not questionable, but it's pretty wide. We're talking 2011. How were people understanding and accepting natural wines? In France or in New York? Well, when you brought them back in New York, for starters, because I know France was way ahead of the curve, the wine bars, the winemakers, so the habits in the farm and the cellar. existed. So for me, it was pretty easy because I had a great database of restaurants, mainly high-end restaurants in New York. And I knew their threshold. And so I was coming back with wines from La Classe, from Coutelou, or the Clofantine. Yes, they had a little bit of gas. At some point, Jean-Luc was like, they're re-fermenting. I'm like, no, it's not re-fermentation. <laughs> it's gas that they leave in the wine because if they had to rack it back and forth, the wine would risk oxidation because it doesn't have any sulfur in it. Uh, the CO2 is a natural preservative. So there was a little bit of talking to be done, uh, even with high-end people, because they, they weren't exposed that much to natural wine, even though they were uh, important and prominent 
importers uh, that would bring those wines in. But I don't think they had uh, these accounts that I had, which were more on the high end. For example, Touch of Class was by the glass at Daniel, and that's my friend uh, Raj Vaidya, who, who had done that. So I had some good cues on my first order uh, that this would work. So guys like Raj got it. Yeah. At a place like Danielle, which is like a Burgundy Bordeaux and they, palace. And they right? had like a pink label with a flashy diamond on it next to the traditional uh, Graillot being poured by the glass. What about staying with natural wines? What about transportation? Like in those days, I... I I don't worry, but was stability an issue? You, no, you know. not at all. I work with Fruit of the Vine. And from June 15th uh, to September 15th, everything is in a reefer container. Uh, so that's fine. I started my first pickup in January. So I didn't think that the transportation was an issue. We store at Fond du Lac, uh, which is temperature controlled. The thing, I, and I'm happy that you're asking, and the first customers that I had, I would first go... Um, before I delivered the wine, I'd sit down with them and I'd always ask them at the end of a tasting, can I please go and visit your wine storage in order to see... Their provenance. Exactly. So because they don't lay it back on you. Exactly. Right. And so, but for me, it was really uh, a moral obligation I had towards my grower right. and towards the work they were doing in order not to have you know the last link spoil the wine and the final customer saying, like, what is that natural wine? And I wouldn't go around screaming natural wine and say, hey, I have wine if yeah. you'd like to taste it. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's... So it was always like looking at uh, customers. Do you have a glassware? Do you have a decanter? And do you have a temperature-controlled area where uh, you can store the wine? Some restaurants did not. So I would not sell them four-case drop, but I'd sell them like maybe one case so that they could rotate it quicker. Maybe not in the summer. I'd only sell wine to them in the winter. So in the beginning, it was a little bit of an investigation, but it really picked up. And I find that today, a lot of restaurants in New York are really well-equipped. Yeah, because I, I think they understand what's going on. Do you remember when you were bringing wines in back then, were there a handful of people bringing similar wines in, or are there already a bunch of wines in the market? Well, you already had, uh, of course, the, the Fresner, the Genia Francois, Zev, Zev. Who, had, who had started so, in 2008. So, okay. But, they, yeah, these were like maybe But they the, were at their early stages of... Uh, Jenny Francois, I think she started in 2000, so she already was. Oh, no, I, I that think, far? Uh, but, wow. I think. Uh, but when did she start? When she was 11? <laughs> maybe. We'll have she to started. ask. I listened to a podcast not long ago. It was very early on. Yeah, she has been on this show. She's um, terrific. Um, Pre-pandemic, were most of your wines sold through restaurants or retailers? I always had an affinity with restaurants. Uh, because concentrated? Uh, when I was at Wildman, I always sold to restaurants. It's a good way also to have representation. You know, if you have a wine by the glass in a, in a restaurant, there's going to be 90 people looking at it. It's, if you have in a store, there will be less. But I also wanted to be able to have a retailer in every area of New York. I didn't need to be in all retail stores, but I just wanted a customer to be able not, not to have to travel five right. miles. So you pick somebody on the Upper East Side so yeah. that you're right. on you the Upper need East to be side. on every corner. That was or Eli's on the Upper East Side. Uh, on the Lower East Side's Discovery. Uh, so there are different uh, stores, but I always focused on restaurants. Yeah. Um, I think the restaurants are a good conduit to the consumer. You know, they really introduce and have wines that, you know, a lot of people 
don't carry or see, which is a nice thing. And they also have two hours to have a conversation with the guest. And in a store, it's five minutes in and out. Yeah. Um, you import only French wine, right? And Swiss cider. Well, I was going to ask you later on if you were going to import things other than wine, like cider or beer. Um, but we'll, I'll ask you that later on. But predominantly, um, you uh, import wines from France. Um, is there a predominant region where most of your wineries are? I, I know it's all spread out. It's all spread out. It's like, uh, which makes it hard, but France is a small country. So it's easy. In January, usually when I go and do all of the, the big tour, I'll land in Paris and I'll start with Alsace, go down to the Jura, uh, zoom over to Burgundy, down to Ardèche, over to Provence, hop over to the Languedoc, down to the Roussillon, up to Cahors, and Gaillac, and up to the Loire Valley, and zigzag that one. So you have your itinerary pretty logically set up and all that, which is pretty cool. And that, as you said earlier, we're talking about 25 different wineries. So that's one, one day with each winemaker. And ideally, so I also So you're out there the for summer. a month or so? Yep. Every year? Forget the pandemic yep. last year. That's Usually every one month in January and afterwards in the summer, which is always a way better time to go because the wines are finished, it's warm, and you can go swimming in the rivers after a tasting. And you have the uh, winemaker's attention. <laughs> they're not as distracted, hopefully. Oh, they're always pretty focused, and really we're happy to see each other because we're all friends. Um, also another uh, thing with all my winemakers, uh, they're all friends, and I could all spend a, a week vacation with them. Right. Which is nice. Yeah, so it's always a, that's, that's, uh, it's always fun when we get together. Uh, in January, I do have to put an alarm clock at midnight uh, because otherwise I'll never make it for the 25-day marathon. That is, that is a marathon. Um, I think some people would envy you, but I think most people would like to try it at least once. Yeah, I, th I think that they would like quit after 24 hours because when you're like not eating, yeah. tasting in a cold cellar well, for you're, hours. You're but. almost like an Olympian. You've been doing this in training for years. You know, you know how to get on the floor and, you know, do the routine. So that's good for you. Um, it's hard to talk about you and your business. And I hope we can get into some other makers, too, um, without bringing up Tissot. Yeah. Um, for many reasons. Um, the wines are incredible. You know, he's incredible. They're incredible. They make, compared to some of your wineries, a decent amount of wine, which is nice to have wine to give to people. Um, I think there's a story there. Doesn't it go back to Wildman? And yeah, we started the same day at Wildman. I started in uh, January 2006, and he came on also at uh, the same moment. And each time he was really dedicated to making the New York market work. And once a year or once every other year, he'd come to New York and we'd work the market. I would always request the work with and jump on it. And we'd work together and I'd set up uh, dinners and we'd bring in old vintages. And uh, Stefan is very energetic. He's one of the only persons I know who's out of his car before the engine is off. Yeah. And, <laughs> How do you uh, do that? And so me, Long like, climbing, climbing stairs four steps at a time, we were just uh, on the perfect speed together. And, yeah, we'd uh, roll in, do 12 appointments a day, and at night we say, Led, let's do more. And we'd do dinners. I think for the we've known each other so 2006, 15 years now. And I think it, all, it almost took 10 years for us to sit down and have a, a dinner together uh, and not be running on the streets and, so and showing work. work. 
Yeah, but it's and no fun. Play it's until play. ten years where you were able to just. Well, that was playing. Working is playing yeah. with them. When we have like gold nice in the bag, it's fun. Yeah, it's nice to say that. So you were at Wildman. He was at Wildman. You represented him. What happens then? Because you're not at Wildman. Well, I left uh, Wildman. Uh, I also herniated my back twice, uh, schlepping wine, and I was... Uh, really? As a direct result? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was kind of... Uh, surgery? Or yeah, surgery, L4-5, really? and then uh, uh, oh physical boy. therapy, but that works out great. And, um, and then I decided, uh, I told him when I was quitting, and he didn't say anything, and he called me in October after I had done my little tour in New York City with the three wineries from the Languedoc, uh, which were Tendesseries, um, Mascoutlou, and Clofantine, uh, three wineries that are 30 minutes different, uh, 30 minutes on the road, very close to each right. other, but completely different in terms of winemaking and soils. And, uh, and so he called me in October and said, hey, Camille, what are you up to? And I'm like, you'll never guess, Stefan, I started an import company. And he's like, oh, no joke, I was waiting on that. So I'd love to join you. And then my heart dropped, and I'm like, I would be so honored, but I could never handle you. You are 50 hectares biodynamic farming. You're one of the greatest winemakers. I'm new on the block. I don't have the finance to do that because I started the company with the $18,000 I was able to set aside from working in New York for five years. And I told him I would be honored, but there's no way I would do that. He said, come over. And so I hopped on the train, went to the Jura uh, and stayed at their house as I usually did. And that was not my first time at his place because I usually would take my vacation when I worked at Wildman to go and visit him in the Jura because it's always been one of my favorite and most fascinating regions for many reasons. And uh, that's how we started. I still remember my first Mickey Mouse order with him. It must have been the first invoice, like 10 cases of, uh, of Chardonnay, 15 cases of Cremant, and... Uh, and 10 cases of Pulsar. He laughed, but he made that order happen, and he gave me 90 days term payments, so that was the first So you role. were able to get paid to pay him. Exactly. Well, so that was really nice of him. But I started, had to make the wines rotate and go quick. So I was based in France in the beginning of the company, and uh, each time there's a container landing, I would uh, take come a over. flight, I would come over uh, and, uh, and sell the wine. At the same time, I was also a biking tour guide for Butterfield and Robinson, ah. so I had the cash tip allowed me to live, and all the money was reinvested in the company. So it was Butterfield and Robinson paying for the plane tickets. So it tickets. was Butterfield wine country trips? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's funny. So Stéphane put a lot of trust in you in many ways. He did. Without him, I and would have never been... And you didn't solicit him. No, no. In the back of your mind, it's like, I got to get to... No, to... He was too big. He was too big. There you was, just thought, no I'm not going to... Yeah. In the there, beginning, I, even, I thought I would be maybe not even an importer. I thought I'd be an agent. And then There's I, a lesson in there. You can't sell yourself short. You know, you were out there busting your ass. You know, you were working hard for the company and your people, your wine people. He saw that. Yeah. You know, he came to you. I guess, you know, but in, in France, we're, we're never brought up being told, you're amazing, you're great, and you deserve it. It's always you have to work and prove yourself. Uh, so I come from that cultural background, which never entitled me to think I could possibly have the honor to represent his wines. So... To that point, and I don't know if we were going to get to this or not, um, did that have anything to do with being a woman? I never thought that being a woman was... It a, never hampered your efforts no. in, in business with winemakers at Wildman? No. You no know, harassment? You know. Oh, yes, of course, well, of course. Different things. I mean, growing the business... 
You know the old story. You walk into a nice restaurant, the sommelier is a woman. They say, where's the sommelier? You know, that's how women are perceived sometimes. Um, People ask me for who I work sometimes. Right, right. But it didn't get in the way of growing the business. But being in the business, the, the industry can be a little crazy as far as... Well, you know what? The winemakers... Uh, they saw me at every single tasting and they saw me go at every single table and I was with my notebooks and I have 10 years of scratched notebooks with all the talking, the reading about the wine. And uh, so people pick up on that. They're like, who is that young woman uh, who's in every tastings and who's having fun with certain winemakers? And the winemakers, they talk a lot. And so, you know, they'll say, for example, the Clofantine, they really loved... Uh, people in the natural wine community and people would come to see them and say like oh what do you think about this girl and so they would recommend me you know there's always that vouching for someone for example I worked with Catherine Ries and when I started working with her uh, it was fun since the get-go for example Jacques Peritas who really likes Catherine Ries said oh how is Camille how does she work Catherine gave him the go and so it's usually the word of mouth Um, that's that's the wine side. What about the industry side, the trade side? You oh. know, being a woman going into accounts or, you know, I mean, did you feel any push there or? Oh, no, I was, uh, I always had a lot of fun selling wine and I, it's still my favorite thing you, today. You kind of got it. A, so a lot you knew of the, how a lot, to deal with it, a right? Lot of, a lot of the other reps, when they see me coming, they're like, oh, no. And I, and I had that thing <laughs> from, the, that. from the big Wildman company where at the end of every tasting, I had a little bottle of Chartreuse in order to shoot the palette so the reps behind me could not this sell. This is the chartreuse capital, exactly. Racine. You have the ambassador here, Pascaline. So you knew, you knew how to uh, handle it. Um, before we take a break, um, I want to get a sense of the pandemic. It's hard not to sit with people, and I've been doing it for a year already, without talking about the pandemic and how it affected them. And the context is a few things. It's what happened during the pandemic. How are things going to be after? Um, can smaller wine importers, you know, maintain and continue to grow through the pandemic? Um, I worry about some of your winemakers. You know, Tissot is pretty big, but I'm sure you'll deal with some really small guys. What effect has the pandemic had on you, your business? And your, you know, your winemakers in general, which are generally smaller. So um, I had had for many years, and I kept a log, of a lot of uh, wholesalers in other states inquire about the wines. But I was selling everything in New York, and you make, you know, the import and the wholesale margin. Um, so I was selling everything in New York. And when the New York scene took a very long disco nap, uh, <laughs> I was able to... When was that? The disco nap? Yeah. That was COVID. Oh. Uh, I wasn't sure you were referring to something right before. Yeah. And, uh, the, and so I was able to open the wine because the idea was to basically not lose the allocations from growers that I had been working hard on, be able to move the wine for them uh, so that we'd be in a good position when we get out of this. And so I just diverted uh, the wines to other states. Is that when you started? Doing distribution out of the market? We started already uh, with Aaron Sylvester, who's a good friend of mine in California. I can't remember, maybe three or four years ago. 
and uh, then added, you uh, know, Texas, Illinois, uh, Colorado, New Mexico, uh, Illinois, a bunch of other states. Aren't people Maryland. coming to you and saying, hey, listen, I want to get my hands on some of these wines. How can we... Yeah. So besides solicitation, they were coming to you too. Yeah, they were coming to you. And also I wanted to see, you know, I, I never say yes immediately. Uh, I want to, to be able to, right. to be sure that the people are motivated and not just interested. The right match. The right match yeah. for, for the growers. So during the pandemic, you were able to do a little more of that because you focused on restaurants that yeah. pretty much shut down. Yeah, but in the end, basically last year, I think volume-wise, in case I did more than pre-pandemic, uh, because I was able to move on to other states and there was demand them. So part of the question was, how did the winemakers do during that? Based on what you're telling me, they were able to make the wines that they usually make, you but know, barring wine- frost, hail or whatever. And you were able to move it for them. Yeah, but all the wine, most of the winemakers I work with uh, sell out of their wines. Because of quantity? Because of quantity, because of a growing, a, growing interest worldwide. Right. They've, they've made know. a name for yeah. themselves. America came really late on the natural wine scene. Uh, Japan was really well positioned when early do you, on. When do you define when America kind of woke to the natural wine scene? 2013, 14, yeah. maybe? A little a greater right. interest. That's when you see like... Like a small importers popping up like mushrooms everywhere. And even when you say 13, 14, those first two, three, four years were not like, you know, this exuberance or whatever. Yeah. Not as much as now. Um, so then the winery should fare well going into barring natural type things. Yeah. For example, for Stefan, you know, you like to talk about him. Uh, 2018 was a, a huge vintage. Uh, which is great in terms of volume. It, Stefan wanted to be able to prolong, uh, prolong the aging on his wines. And so a little bit of a slow in the market was able to give him that opportunity of holding back the wines in order to release them when they're just perfectly able to drink. Uh, so I think Something that, you want to do, but you can't, and now you're forced to, and it's good. Yeah, and also financially you can do it because yeah. it's such a great, uh, large vintage. Yeah, that's, that's good. Because you still have to pay all your staff and... Um, well, that, that's sort company. of good news. I mean, I'm happy to hear that, you know, your business was able to function through this and that the winemakers, you know, were able to, you know, not sit on their wines or lose money. Um, Camille, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Camille Rivieri. Camille has her own business, Camille Rivieri Selection. She focuses on some very interesting French wines. Um, When we come back, I want to get her take on a bunch of other things. We're going to taste one of her wines. We'll subject her to the wine list. So we have a lot more ahead. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Garden Cult, garden design and coaching. Carmen DeVito is a professional garden designer, certified New York State landscape professional, and the founder of Garden Cult. You may also know her from HRN's home gardening videos and our series, We Dig Plants. Garden Cult is a culmination of Carmen's more than two decades of experience designing and building gardens in New York City. Carmen believes that gardens and outdoor spaces should be healthy, environmentally sustainable places that enhance the health of people, nature, and the planet. 
She knows how to help you maximize the space you've got, help you work with and make the most of the materials, plants, and trees that you already have, and create an outdoor place to use and enjoy for you and your family. Get started at GardenCult.com. For a 15% discount on virtual garden consultations and coaching sessions, use code HRN15 through September 30th, 2021. That's code HRN15 at GardenCult.com. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guest, Camille. Camille Rivieri. She has her own import company, Camille Rivieri Selection. I want to get your take on changes you have seen, and we've kind of talked about it a little, with the consumer since you started importing, you know, because you really focused on, you've been in the business for years, but you focused on your wines. Um, is it more of an understanding and acceptance of natural wines? I mean, w- what are some of the, uh, you know, changes? Good well, it or bad? had to come. People were eating organic food. It was just That's a question. crazy. That's it the was, craziest argument. It was just a question of time before they would stop putting dead wine in their glasses while eating organic food. Uh, it, it just took a little longer. And it's also more nebulous because there is no listing of products that are in wine. Uh, there isn't even an association uh really about natural wine. There are many different associations about natural wine, but there is no guidebook. Uh, Do people like Isabella Geron and Raw Wine help the case a little? Huge. But even more, you know, what's in wines and, you know, any kind of regulation. I don't know if you want to be regulated. Well, she does it on her, uh, she prints on all of her manuals and books at the tasting, the amount of uh, SO2 uh, total. That's in the wine. Uh, So that's very straightforward and great. She asks, you know, people to bring their analyses, send them out so that uh, it's proven and it's on the books. Because, you know, you have a lot of people saying like, oh, this is spontaneous fermentation. This is no sulfur. There's a lot of there's not a lot of clear information available. And I think Isabel does an amazing job. Right. So the consumer realizes I'm eating clean. I'm not necessarily drinking clean. So one of the changes is they've made that shift. Um, what about like in the restaurant and retail side, they realized that and they started buying more wines. Did they cheerlead for, you know, smaller wineries and more naturally oriented wines? You already had those, uh, retailers that already did that. And it spread to, it spread. I think I'm getting requests from, um, from retailers, you know, that used to make fun of natural wine. And I'm I'm very happy to see that they've evolved and changed their minds, and I'm very grateful for that. And I'm yeah. happy to have a conversation with them. It's a it's a good time. I mean, the growth. Um, back to the pandemic for a second. Has it changed? What are the biggest changes the pandemic has created for you? You know, restaurants coming back slowly, retailers. I mean, uh, are things going to be different post-pandemic? When we get back to normal, or you'll be in decent shape. I th- I hope that. Uh, but the the retailers were going super strong, and they probably had the busiest year they've ever had. Even combining all of their holiday season could not possibly look as good as the business they did during the pandemic. So retailers are in a good position, and they were able to get allocations from restaurants that were shut down. Right. So that's 
a great position to be to in. Them. Yes. Yeah. And now it's the hair splitting of like restaurants are back up from their disco nap, and we have to reshift allocation and share. So a lot of uh, angry people, uh, yeah, entitled people asking for that wine. I'm well, like, with man. the allocated stuff, they were always a little angry. Yes. <laughs> you know, now it's exacerbated, I guess. So we just have to be polite and try to. Do you see restaurants changing the way they present wine as far as the size of lists, the type of wines, price points? Do you see... You know, there's some things that are changing. For example, I did uh, I started a project with Julien Albertus from Kumpfemeyer, uh, who has started kegging wine of great quality. And so you're able, basically, you know, the carbon footprint is lower, the cost is much lower, you're not deforesting the cork forest... Uh, and we're able to bring really great wine at a super affordable price. So I've seen a lot of restaurant uh, implementing um, keg lines. So instead of bringing in cases of bottles, the winemaker will put the wine in the keg vessel, send it to the restaurant, and the restaurant will serve it like they would a tap beer. Yeah, exactly. So, so less uh, bottles. Yeah, so. but if we, and also price-wise. For example, a bo- if it was a bottle... If it was in bottle, it would maybe cost 18 bucks because it's in the keg. Right. It's 12 glass, $12 a glass. So you're also, I, I thought I saw the pandemic and I saw it's going to be a very long road for restaurants to economically be able to recover from that. I'm like, how can we provide amazing quality, great house wine, which is not usually the case, Perfect, uh, right? for a, a good bang for the buck, a good price point for, you know, all those young people starting to get into wine that probably don't have the budget, you know, for an $18 wine, but everybody wants that skin contact. So Julien Albertus saw that, and he's also, first he did it for... He saw in 2018, it was a super large production in Alsace. And most of those winemakers, they're good farmers, but they're really terrible marketers. And so Julien started this uh, negoce called Jeux de Vin and uh, reached out to some winemakers and kegged their wine in order to be able to empty their winery for them to be able to host a 2019 vintage. Uh, Because once, you know, once you bottle the wine, it takes a lot of space in the winery and you also have to put in front the money to, to get the glass, the corks, and you also have to empty those vessels in order to be able to get the new vintage in. So, so that was one of the answers for restaurants. Uh, I think it's to be great. Able to I get... hope to see more of it. hope it catches on. Um, a lot of restaurants sold off a lot of their wine to survive. They literally brought it from downstairs to upstairs and were able to sell it. Some sold their, I mean, Del Posto sold the whole collection or whatever. Um, in a sense, doesn't that mean a lot of restaurants are starting from it's near insane, scratch? It's insane, Sam. It's Isn't insane. that good for you? Yes. It's a little maddening. Uh, I think, for me, I had stopped buying wine no, with the tariffs. I was like, this is ridiculous. We're not going to be bringing in expensive wine uh, post-pandemic when people can't afford it. So I quit buying wine in March. These are with your producers? Yeah, I quit. Of the 25 producers, p- during the tariff, you said, I got to either stop or... No, no, or ho- just, just March, uh, just February and March, okay. you know, when everything was taxed. Okay. And I couldn't balance out my, my cost. And so I told them, uh, we're going to take a pause. And so I had no more wine. I had cleaned up whiteout inventory uh, by April. Wow. 
And but when you know March 11th, the news of the tariffs being lifted or paused for six months, uh, I started bringing in a lot of wine. That was logistical mayhem. It takes like two months to three months to get wine door to door, when it used to take six weeks. And I've been go- working like an animal uh, all of April, May, June. I think May was my biggest month ever in the company. Uh, June is looking even better. So it's it's been a lot of uh, a lot of work, a lot of logistical synchronizing to get the wines to the people. But there's definitely uh, a lot of energy out there. Yeah, I'm glad to hear. So that is an indication of things moving in the right direction. I think. I, I don't know if the word normal, normalcy is right, but I'd much rather hear that, you know, than what's going on in the world. Um, that's pretty nice. Logistically... Because you are a one-man shop, your wife will help you. Um, there's all the stuff that you mentioned Zev taught you about early on, you know, paying bills, shipping containers, bonding, whatever. Do you do that, or have you... No, I decided to buy myself a peace of mind. And uh, Philippe Vernet over at Fruit the Vine and his incredible team do all the logistics. I just send a PO to the office, and of course I... I make sure to register the label, to price post the wine, to tell the winemaker to be ready, to send him the back labels. And I don't see how you could run your business without making a move like that. You would be up till four in the morning, you know, doing invoices. And I think that's the smartest thing. Whatever percentage they get is worth every penny, right? It's worth every single for penny. You. Did it's you like figure I, I, that on, out early on? or Since the beginning. I all, because a lot of people, even Jenny and Francois, they, have clear, they all work through clearing companies. You have three of them in New York, major of them. You have Through the Vine. Uh, so you, very few people are say, yeah. handling the... Li- the whole part of it. You need an office. You need a compliance yeah. person. You need yeah. a broker. You need... Uh, an import license, a distribution license, a lawyer. You need so much that uh, I decided to focus on what I could do well and not try to handle everything. It's great. I think that's, you know, the realization of that, uh, you know, is the right one. Um, Selfishly, I wouldn't be happy if I left this table without asking you, tapping into you, um, even though you specialize in France, within France or even beyond. Tell me some regions, wines, winemakers that continue to excite you or, you know. Alsace. Alsace so much. Yeah? Uh, it Why? Is, it is a very dynamic area because, like, first of all, I think Alsace, I read something like 30% of the domains are organically certified. Yes. So they have the culture yeah. of farming, uh, they also have a lot of rigueur. Um, a lot of work goes into the, the cellar. They're not in free flow. Um, and there's a, a very dynamic uh, group of young winemakers making it happen. I have three wineries in Alsace, and I think it's an incredible value um, for wine in France in general. I agree. Um, Ardèche also I really love. It's another great value place and then you can go we're going to try an Ardèche right yes but that goes back to my earlier point and it seems frustrating to me but you seem to be at peace with it if if the Alsace is you know great and you know there's all these young and up and coming winemakers and some great wines are coming out of there you don't have the room to represent them 
or can you or will you? Oh, add? yes, of course. You will? Yeah, because out of the three winemakers I have, they all work differently. Uh, for example, uh, Catherine Ries, you know, I get my very tiny allocation once a year and it pre-sales on the boat. So it's just, a, in the beginning I tasted it with people, now it's just, it lands, it ships. Uh, uh, Jean-Pierre Jean Rich, I have to work with him. He likes to bottle everything and immediately as it's bottled, I pick up everything once a year. It gets there, I do allocation spreadsheets, every state is taken care of, then I focus on New York and that's pretty easy to sell. Then there's a Cumfe Meilleur where I have wine, no, uh, that come in depending on the when it's ready in the year. Uh, so that's a little bit more spread out. And also a fourth winery in Alsace, actually, called Jeux de Vin, that uh, Julien Albertus started. Uh, he also uh, runs and co-owns Domaine Cumfe Meilleur. And uh, for this keg business, and we're also doing some bottle business with him, and that's kind of fun. Uh, and I think as we go on, as the winemakers are more established, more renowned, you know, it's like it's like gardening, uh, <laughs> selling wine. You just plant a seed, you right. know, and every year it kind of comes back stronger. Uh, so people are getting used, and so it doesn't take the same uh, uh, street efforts to move right. the wine. I get uh, that. in time. Like with the keg thing, can you be an instigator? Can you go to your other winemakers who don't even have a thought of this and say, "Hey, what do you think of this idea?" You know, oh, no, they, don't, they already don't have enough 750s. I'm not going to have them keg it. And also, a lot of some winemakers think the keg, you know, it takes away. It, right. does, it does take away from your image because, you're, you know, when you have a wine on right. keg, it doesn't have a label uh, or, or something. So it makes sense for some people, and it may not for others. I yeah. get that. I didn't even realize that, but that makes uh, total sense to me. Um, I asked you earlier. Um, did you ever think of importing beyond just wine? And you said you have one cider from Switzerland. Yeah. Um, is that an area cider or anything else that you want to expand? Are you I've, actively looking or if you see something? I've always loved the Vulcan since day one. I was Wait, say that again. I don't know what you mean. The ciders of Vulcan to me are the Spell. greatest. Vulcan, V-U-L. C-A-I-N. Vulcan. Vulcan, okay. which is the name of a butterfly. And they're made by Jacques Peritas, uh, who is, uh, lives in Switzerland. And I've always adored these ciders. I've always wanted to work with those ciders. It's probably the winery I do the most quality control of on a weekly basis. And uh, I just relentlessly reached out to him. I would never work with any other uh, cider maker. I'm not interested in beer. There are some professionals who work with beers, and it also takes a special license to sell beer. And another, um, and so I leave. No, it's really, I, I try to focus on my niche, uh, because also if you go towards beer, you have to develop another set of clientele, because it's not the same buyers. Totally. Also, um, yeah, and so, so you let the professional, I, I just focus I on what I can do. What about countries? You specialize in France. I would assume you get calls from people outside of France that say to you, hey, can you work with me? Do you, yeah. Does that ever happen? Yeah, and do yeah, you yeah, have yeah. an eye on yeah, of is there somebody in Italy or, you know, maybe Eastern Europe? I'd love to go and like travel in Greece. But the thing is, it already takes so much time to be able to go see winemakers twice a year in France. 
I also have a family and run a business solo. So my idea is not to be on the road nonstop. I also love gardening, so I can't be away from a garden too long. So that goes back to you want to do what you want to do, how you want to do it. Yeah, and also... And that expansion will take you away from the things that are important to you. That are important as a lifestyle. And also you have, like, amazing wine importers that already do a terrific job in Italy. You know, if I go with my French accent to Italy, they're going to sell me, like, onion scraps. You have to be able, you know, to, to, to talk, to to be with their family, to understand everything. And you have to speak the same language. It's very important. I think uh, so. And, and know who you're speaking to. Yeah. And also, you know, like the importers, uh, like Selección de la Viña in Spain, he knows all those winemakers. <clears throat> he has a good conversation. He has first dibs. That makes sense. You know, it would take me like another 500 kilometer in the middle of nowhere yeah, away. I have I no roots. I, I admire the way you do it. Um, there's a good work-life balance. It's important. Yeah. It's key. When you get older like me, you realize it's even more key. Yeah. So, you know, you're in the right direction. Um, all right. I want to uh, subject you to my wine list, which is a bunch of questions. But before we do that, I just wanted to ask you one thing. Are there still wineries out there, good ones? Plenty. That are looking for representation? Yes. There is. Yes. So if I wanted to start a little business, if I approached it the right way, there are still people out there that if you can convince them. Absolutely. I don't know that you would be able to make a living right away, but there's definitely opportunity. Well, are you saying I... You don't know if I can make a living because I'll suck at it, or that? no? Because you, <laughs> okay. you need a lot. I'm you need so I'm much because it's like really the margins are tiny. No, no, online. I get it. I get it. I get that. Um, hopefully, you have it at a point you know where it's running well that way. All right, the wine list: five questions. Don't dwell on them. Don't need long answers. Do your best. I will post these answers on our social media site. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? Not right at this table, but what's in your fridge? What are you tasting? Has the seasonal changes pointed you towards wines? Are you tasting for work? You know, what are you drinking these days? Well, I have a cellar upstate uh, that goes back five vintages of all the winemakers I have. And every one of their cuvées. So I'm lucky maybe. Uh, so you have a chance to dip in at any point to your guys. That's great. So you do that. Yeah. For example, be able, uh, last weekend we had uh, the wines of Alain Castex. But from the 19 vintage, because the 2020 vintage I'll drink maybe next year. Okay. So that's pretty cool. Anything else? Anything outside of your portfolio? Uh, the other day I had... Um, that Austrian sparkling uh, uh, rosé, ah, I think it's brought in by, uh, Neum no, not Neumeister. I can't remember the name of it. Delicious sparkling pink from Austria. So I will follow up with you after the show, and then we'll post it. Don't worry about it now. All right, so that's good. Second question, kind of the silliest one, but do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Not something you necessarily eat all the time. But I had just... something fabulous last week, which was grilled sardines and vin jaune, La Mayoche, 2011, from Stéphane Tissot. It was heaven. All right, so one of Tissot's wines, grilled sardines. Explain to me the wine. So the, it's a vin jaune. So vin jaune, it's a Sauvignon. V-I-N-J-A-U-N-E. Yes. Now, why is it called vin jaune? Because they can't label it or... What? It's called Vin Jaune, that's the appellation. Okay. Like Arbois is an appellation. Okay. 
Uh, and so, uh, vin jaune, uh, it's a Sauvignon, and it's aged for six years in, uh, in barrel, in a warm cellar, uh, without being topped. So it develops a little floor on the top, which preserves the wine. And, Almost uh, like port or sherry, where the, there's that little top. Yeah, the, like sherry, yeah, exactly. Now, like is that. it oxidized yes. or is it reduced? It's oxidized, yeah, so it has that It has little, that character? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the specific vineyard site because Stéphane started making Vin Jaune de Terroir in 2003. Uh, and in 2011, he added La Mayoche, which is great for gastronomy. Yeah. And it's, uh, it has a lot of uh, les amers, the bitterness and the spiciness. It and was just well with, extraordinary with the grilled sardines. That's a good one. I know I say this a lot to my guests, but whenever somebody brings something up that nobody ever says before, mm. it's like that's the first time I've heard that. Certainly, you're going to hear like champagne and fried chicken, oysters. Well, I called Stefan and told him, man, that tasting, that was great. He said, oh, I've never had it, but I'm pretty sure it worked out. So that really stood out. All right, third question. You get around a lot, and it's basically your life. Tell me if you can, and, you know, if, if it seems like you're being exclusive, you know, don't. But can you tell me favorite wine restaurants and or bars And I ask you in the context of who has the great selection, you walk in, the vibe is there, the people are knowledgeable. Not everyone can pull that off. Well, you know what? I don't go out that much in restaurant because I have a two-year-old. So when I clock out at 5.30, I clock into my other job, motherhood. <laughs> um, but I must say that post-pandemic, I have been once to a restaurant, the Four Horsemen, and I had such a wonderful time. It was outside on their terrace. It was beautiful. Uh, I know the staff and they're friendly and they're extremely knowledgeable. And Billy, um, the server of that day, brought out three fun bottles that I did not know and opened it and shared ah. it. So it was like, and we didn't have like an app, you know, we had real paper with a wine list. We didn't have to be like on our uh, screens anymore. That's a good one. And just so you know, a lot of people mention Four Horsemen. Hmm. You know, along with like Compagnie and Pascaline, where scenes comes up a lot. But I'm sure all of the other restaurants no, are no, amazing. No, I know, but I know, I just... but I, you explain that, the timing and that place does that well. I mean, that's that's really the way to answer that fun. question. And they also, they age wine. They have a dedicated, like Pascaline does, they have a real deep cellar right. of natural wines. Right. And that's very rare in New York. They get it. All right, fourth question. The question is favorite all-time wine. Now, when I structured the question, I was kind of fishing for people to tell me the rarest, most expensive wine they ever drank. I don't care about that anymore. I care about that wine in oh. your lifetime that was important to you, that maybe was life-changing or opened your eyes. Or what's, what's that wine that's meaningful to you? You know, I really love, uh, and it doesn't exist anymore, the Domaine des Dimanches. Uh, from Emilie Redia, he made a really delicious Pinot Donis with seven months maceration, and you couldn't even believe it was that long because the wine had such gourmandise and freshness. I think that 14 might have been the last vintage, but when I was poor... What happened? I, uh, I think he sold and went with his um, 
is ah. a girlfriend in the south, and now they run together uh, another domain, the domain of his girlfriend. And that wine really stood out to you. Yeah, when I was poor in Paris, I was uh, able <laughs> to buy a, a, a case of it and sip it in my chambre de bonne uh, nice. uh, every day. And uh, that was really delicious. And I really like Emile also as a human being. I find him very interesting. Uh, so that was one of the wines. Of course, another wine could possibly be maybe in 2003, uh, uh, when I bought my first bottle of Clos Rougeard, and that was uh, stunning. And also at that point, it was affordable. It was 25 Jesus. euro chez Taïvan at the cave. It's like uh, 200 bucks now. I don't know. I, I, I'm telling you. Oh, really? Yeah. I drink Corbino anymore, so I just don't know yeah. how much. Well, the Rougeard, that's a good one, too. Um, those are two, you know, notable wines. Um, I think... Jorge Riera at Frenchette turned me on to Pinot d'Onis. I knew about it, and I don't know if I really ever tasted it. And when I go there, I say, you pick the wines, because you got to try it. Which one did you have? I don't remember. If I saw the label. And I'm that guy, like, what do you mean you don't remember? I just, I didn't commit it to memory, but I should. Um, all right, here's the last question, and I don't think anyone, I'm putting the pressure on you, anyone better than you can answer this question. Um, the question is, recommend to me a red and a white wine for about 15, 20, 22 bucks. You know, that's a great wine, great value. And I always say my kids, I told you in their 20s, early 30s, they don't want to bring crappy wine to a dinner or as a gift, but they can't afford 40 bucks. So how do you impress for 15, 18, 22? You can give me a category like Muscadet. You know, I'm fishing for specific makers. Give me your best red and white. And they could be your wines. And I, as a matter of fact, I want them to be your wines because I know that you make sure you have some great, you know, quality value wines. I think that for the red, uh, definitely the Ozil brothers, uh, La Gourmandise, that we're going to be tasting okay, together shortly. Okay, in a minute we're going to do that. So... Um, domain Ozil Ozil O Z I L Yes and Gorman dies Yes um, So that's your red Yeah And that's like what fifteen bucks It would be sixteen uh, seventeen It would be around twenty one maybe 21? Uh, on okay. a on a retail shelf okay. maybe a little less maybe eight, I think a little eight, less well, I eighteen Okay eighteen fifty to twenty so depending right on how the the retailer marks up their wine Give me a white. Alors, white is always harder, I find. It's the opposite with everyone else. The red is the hardest, everyone else. Really? Yeah, you're okay. the opposite. So interesting. Um, maybe, you know, the, uh, a leader from Jean-Pierre Rich, uh, that could be more affordable, but that would be still in the 25 bucks in my book. That's okay. Uh, yeah, the, the Alsatian. Go and look for the, the a Kumpfenmeyer white or a Jean-Pierre Rich white. Kumpfenmeyer. K U M P F, Kumpf, Kumpf. and Meyer, M E Y E R. Okay, because I told you, I post this. People go, that sounded cool. I don't know what she said. Not because of your accent or anything, but Kumpfenmeyer is like a funny name and all that. Um, so we post that. All right, so those are your um, red and white recommendations. I appreciate that. You did a stellar job on the wine list. Now let's taste some wine. I realized, you know, I asked you late. I said, listen, we're sitting down. Let's taste some of your wine so we could talk about it. Um, so you selected the Domaine Ozil Gourmandise, which you just recommended. Tell me a little about the wine. 
We have it in front of us. We're going to taste it. All right. So this is a wine from the southern Ardèche. Ardèche is a very long region uh, that's just on the left of the Rhone Valley. And uh, the Ozil brothers are two. You have Jean-Daniel and Thomas. And they are fifth generation uh, growers in polyculture also, uh, which is always something I seek out because I know that everything has been amortized at the domain. You're not paying for the tractor or the infrastructure that's been taken care of. And also, another great thing, they're young, so we're going to be working together for at least 20 years. So that's really like stars in line for an importer. Uh, and the, this is 2020 vintage, uh, which for them was a very uh, was a great vintage. They had all the time in the world to focus in the vineyard last year. Actually, all the winemakers were calling and saying because like, of the pandemic, yeah, there no was distraction, no salon, no people coming in, no travel, no no Perfect. traveling, no going to Paris. Good and to so take they were pause there. Exactly. So the positive thing, and this is a 70% Syrah, 30% Grenache Noir. They're on limestone. It's a semi-carbonic uh, fermentation without temperature control. It is uh, spontaneously fermented. It is unfined. It is unfiltered. And it has no added SO2. Uh, so no added SO2 self. is just the naturally occurring. Exactly. They don't add a bit. Yeah, and I say it on the back label. Does that mean zero sulfur? No, you can have some naturally because... Uh, so how do you have zero sulfur naturally is doesn't it always occur in wine it always occur naturally in wine and then there's no added sulfur uh, so no, is no added zero sulfur or n not necessarily well they haven't added any sulfur that but I the know. grape naturally Has, will produce right. okay. a little bit uh while it's fermenting right so i thought this was predominantly grenache i got it backwards it's predominantly syrah right and i put on the back labels so a little cheat sheets for every yeah. people instead of putting the I great importer of all time i looked at the wrong vintage the 2019 though. was was more grenache okay so i'm not crazy all right so um it's a blend yes it's rhone varietals yeah grenache southern syrah southern and northern um, and is there any Viognier in there, or is it just... No, the Viognier, they use it 100% for their white cuvée called Sans Rancune. All right, so let's, let's do a little evaluation. The color is like a nice, beautiful uh, purple, you know, mm -hmm. kind of dark. Um, not brooding dark. The um, rim is kind of fuchsia, so it's yeah, on the lighter and, and parts. And you said it's unfiltered, but it's got good clarity. Yeah. Right? Um, they also... Um, uh, the winemaking is made in very large vessels, so at the bottling... What's the um, medium? Is it wood or...? Epoxy. Epoxy. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so that imparts very little... Exactly. No it, yeah, it, it allows the wine to breathe a little bit, not too much. It's really an inexpensive uh, vessel right. for winemakers. Um, give me your descriptors on the nose. I get it really floral with some olives, uh, some nice herbaceousness. The wine is fluid, uh, pleasant to drink uh, with a clean finish. So there is that floral and the olives typical, you know, of some Syrah, Rhone and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, got it's a juicy. It's juicy. It's got a beautiful nose. I mean, and um, it has an invitation. What I love about those wines, you've had a sip and you have this appetence where you really want to have a second sip. So that's the ultimate uh, by the glass wine or house so the, wine. I agree. The mouthfeel is sort of a medium. Mm -hmm. It's not a thin wine, but it's not, you know, unctuous. Um, what about the palate? Does the palate reflect the nose? 
do you get the floral you know what else do you this is very juicy it is very juicy it's very it's easy to drink the it is, yeah, there's no tannin not grippy tannins at all no they're very smooth um what's the alcohol on this 13.5 so it's not super low but you're not feeling no but you're, you're you're in the the this it was a heat wave in france last year that spiked the alcohol a little yeah if you're picking grapes ripe you know in order to be able to make a wine that is able to travel through time and that won't fall apart after six months you have and you want ripe skins uh that's the nature of the game these days with global warming um not everyone's able to make a delicious 9.5% alcohol wine. No. I think less and less. No. This, this, is, <clears throat> this is a delicious wine. Because when we talk about juicy, juicy is usually... The, you don't say juicy in a negative context. You know. um, tell me two things about this wine. What do you think is a good pairing with a wine like this, food-wise? Anything from, I think that this is the type of wine you can have for apéro and it could carry you throughout your dinner. Um, it's fairly open to cheeses, to meats. It's light enough, not light, but as a red, it's not a heavy red. Yeah, it you can go have it that you, way and it could, it's great with a burger. Yeah, pizza, <laughs> yeah. pasta. It is pretty, it's a pretty good all around wine that way. Um, would you. Serve it a teeny bit chilled. Oh, absolutely! Definitely. I brought it. I brought it chilled, but it's been like the. Uh, you could still feel our, it. our interview on it, but it definitely should, should be in the category of the medium red wines to be served chilled. And we talk about room temperature, but that was when we had castles, and it was like fifteen Celsius <laughs> yeah, the in the castles. There. Well, yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. Um, so that's the twenty twenty. Domain Ozil, O-Z-I-L, Gourmandise, it's G-O-U-R-M-A-N-D-I-S-E. It's a Syrah and Grenache blend, and it's 20 bucks up or down, right? Yeah, down, 20 bucks down. Down, probably, okay. Um, so look out for that. Perfect summer wine, you know, for barbecue, for cheese. I mean, And that's also one of the wines I would bring, you know, to um, a meeting where you have, like, the people who don't really drink wine the people who don't are not in love with natural wine it, it, it's it just um, i think it would bring pleasure to a large scope yeah. of palates yeah i i agree with that it's a good representation of getting the right wine without mm. worrying about all the other stuff um <clears throat> do they make a decent amount of it yes and i've been able to talk them into having a lot of their production but i have to get on that phone and i have to see them in january <laughs> And I know when they bottled this one in March, prior to that, I have to be sure to nail down the allocation and pick up as soon as possible. Otherwise, otherwise you know, people start, yeah. uh, otherwise the, the, the quantity of available wine diminishes as it starts shipping towards the other countries. I get that. Um, we got to wrap up. But to that point, have you traveled anywhere up until now? And if not, when are you going to hit the road? Uh, so because we have a, a two-year-old and she's not vaccinated, I don't see the urge to get myself in a plane in a country like France where they are not vaccinated uh, wildly, right. uh, especially with the Delta variant. So I'm going to wait and uh, definitely looking forward to January 22 okay. being on the road back again. So kind of hang low through the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, good for you. 
your priorities have changed. Yeah, you know, we have a house upstate uh, in Accord. And so uh, we spend a, we have like the hybrid lifestyle, one week up there, one week down here. Okay. And so, so during the pandemic, you were able to camp out up there for a while? Yeah, for like seven months. Not back and forth so No, never. Good for you. Yeah. So you get to appreciate that. All right, Camille, we have to wrap up. We did over an hour. Thank you, Sam. We could sit here another hour because I'm not even half done, but I got to do what I got to do. All right. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at Sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at Esprin Ruby. On Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know it's confusing, but use the hashtag The Grape Nation. Um, we're trying to build a community on Clubhouse, so follow us there at Ben Ruby. As I mentioned, we'll post Camille's wine list on our social media. Um, she has some great recommendations, so you want to follow that. And I will also post our weekly wine sip. You know, I'll give you the specifics on everything um, on our social media sites. Camille, if we want to find out more, follow you on social media and on Camille Riviera Selections, where should we turn to? On the social? Instagram. The Instagram. And that is Camille Riviera Selection? Yes. No S. Yes. Okay. Um, and everything you're doing kind of goes through there. Not a lot. I, I really am not a very good uh, social media posters because I'm busy bringing in wine, but uh, I, I promise to try and do that it. That is the greatest sentence I love to hear because people are so focused towards social media to get things what they think done where you don't have time for it because you need the time to get things done the that are going well. So, you know. I wouldn't change that up too much. Um, but I think sometimes people are intrigued. No, and they want to see yeah. you, you know, what you're bringing in, or, you know, all that stuff. But I do answer, I have my uh, email on the back of every bottle, and I love when people inquire and have questions. I forgot and, to and mention always, that. You did that almost from the beginning, right? Yeah, to, in order to be able to have a conversation. So literally, somebody's sitting around with five people at a barbecue. They go, this is unbelievable. What is it? And then they say, I'm sending an email to this woman. And I've tell had her how. Oh, you know, I've had a few drunken, uh, enjoyable that. emails. That was fun. <laughs> I love that. That there's a, a democratic, accessible thing to all of that, which is very nice. All right, I want to thank our guest Camille Rivieri. Um, thanks to our engineers at Heritage and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.